Hi, and welcome to Hell of Presidents. This is the first of our bonus episodes. The first three of these are going to be deep dives focusing on specific eras in American history rather than specific presidents. Today, we are going back to the beginning and looking at the founding era, the revolutionary and constitutional periods. us revisit this, we're joined by Osida Nwanevu, who is a contributing editor to the New Republic and is currently writing a book, The Right of the People, Democracy and the Case for a New American Founding. Osida, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start off kind of globally, uh, big picture. One of your recent pieces for the New Republic is kind of a meditation on how we think of our founding history through a discussion of historian Alan Taylor's book on the subject. You wrote, Taylor's book's power lies not in the provision of a tidy counter-narrative to our cherished national myths, but in their suggestion that we can afford to dispense with sweeping narratives altogether, that we can find what we really need from American history in its chaos and contingencies, which I like to think is kind of what we're trying to do here. Uh, in our current culture war over historical education, it seems like the popular revisionist stance is to point out a kind of hypocritical conflict between what we imagine our founding principles of liberty and freedom to be and the actual thoughts and actions of the founders and how they structured the government. As if the founders were like when they were writing the Constitution telling lies or had their fingers crossed behind their backs or something. But it seems maybe more instructive to look at how they were doing exactly what they meant to and really were enacting the stated values of the revolution, though through the chaos and contingencies of the founding era. Uh, and I was just wondering what you would make of all that, Osita. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess I, I started that piece really wanting to communicate, like you said, the things that I thought that were most valuable about Taylor's approach to history. And, you know, I think that in a lot of our conversations right now about American history, you know, over the last half decade, there's always been a lot of writing trying to unpack, um, you know, the role of slavery and, and racism in American history um, the extent to which certain values have or haven't been lived up to. I think that a lot of those conversations tend towards a, a desire for us to reach some kind of essential understanding of what America is. Um, mm. To say that on the one hand, we've been taught all our lives in civics class and in history class, you know, when we go to school, that America is this shining beacon of, of liberty and, and espouses all of these values, democracy, equality, um, that it really has stood up for throughout its history. I think that there's the, the, the response to that we've gotten, I think over the last half decade has been to look at the history and say, no, it's, it's the opposite. America is this other essential thing that is defined by slavery, racism, um, and these other aspects of our history that we've really kind of shoved under the bed. Um, and that's what America essentially is. What I find most interesting in, books like Taylor's and other historical works is that the, the picture of history you actually get when you look at the interplay of events and people um, is that history is really kind of a slaughterhouse. Uh, it's, 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 it's something that's very hard to say one thing or another about, in part because you see these different moments where different groups of people are exercising agency um, and trying to shape events in a particular direction. Um, and you know, Matt Carp just did a piece actually in Harper's on, on the same kind of theme, um, saying that it, it is true that there are certain things that we definitely need to talk about that we haven't really taken seriously in American history. It's true that a lot of deeply evil things have happened at the hands of American presidents and others. Um, but what you should get from reading history is a sense that things um, are always kind of changing. Things can always change. Um, and it's a matter of understanding those moments where uh, the friction creates opportunities for people who believe in justice and equality. You know, that, that's, that sort of should be, I think, the, the, real, the real hope of, of untangling the history. Not just to say that we are forever stained by this or that, but, but to sort of say, all of this stuff happened. We need to understand why it happened, partially because understanding why it happened also offers us the opportunity to 
pull things in a different direction, if we can understand the sort of underlying forces that undergird uh, the events we see happening at the surface. That's a kind of un, an unwieldy thing, a way of saying what I, what I try to say in that piece. And I hope mm-hmm. it, it made sense. I, I, yeah, and I think a big reason for that is that we have been trained and, and we instinctively at this point process history as this series of discrete events. What contextualizes that history and makes it make sense is to understand it as a process. But that procedural element is the thing that's hardest to communicate in popular um, memory of history and popular debates about history. We have to have these uh, pinned down uh, museum pieces and dioramas to dissect. And by doing that, you lose the the historical momentum that was charging that moment and, and charging the decisions of all the people uh, struggling within that framework. Uh, and, and yeah, like that's a fundamental, uh, I think hindrance to our understanding of history is our inability to, to think of it as a flow to try to make it into these, these determined categories that can't change over time. So one of the other things that you highlighted in your piece also that, you know, I kind of wanted to get to is how the way that we think about the founding is in a lot of ways precisely inverted. You cited this one point about how we're taught of the Boston Tea Party or we think of the Boston Tea Party as a as a tax revolt, but the um the actual revolt on it is that the the British had actually reduced the price of tea and the uh, founder the revolutionaries who participated in the Tea Party were were trashing the underpriced tea to protect their commercial prerogatives on their overpriced tea, you know. And I, I just think that that is an interesting example of how we supposedly get the sense that there was a revolutionary ferment, but we don't get the sense that uh, you know it was actually to protect the the higher commercial interests rather than some uh, a bedrock principle of uh, about you know taxes and representation and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it, it's very hard to sort of see the American Revolution at its end as something that was a huge expansion in liberty and rights for everybody is in the way that we think of it, right? For, in the first place, obviously, it wasn't true for people like slaves, for people like women. That's, mm-hmm. that's obviously true. But also for the ordinary sort of white guy in American society, uh, many places taxes were higher than the, after the revolution than they were beforehand because the revolution destroyed the, the economy and states had all these debts that they had to pay down. And that's, that's part of what leads to the constitution, right? You have all of these debt crises that uh, basically expose to the wealthy people in American society, the flaws in the Articles of Confederation that motivates uh, the Philadelphia Convention 1787. But, you know, the revolution itself you know, I, I do think there's there's a level upon which people like um, you know the Adamses, uh, people like Washington, the sort of the founding figures that we think of. I, I think they really did see themselves as people who had legitimate grievances against government. I think that they, they developed a kind of ideological sense of themselves as people who were legitimately aggrieved on the basis of a certain conception of rights by the actions of of the British government. But that but that wasn't something that was ever intended to, you know, confer a, a broad sense of legitimacy to the American public as a whole. Um, you see that in their actions after the revolution, sort of tamping down popular sentiment. But you also see it in the early days before the war breaks out. There are people like Ebenezer McIntosh, who I mentioned in the piece, who is one of the leaders of, uh, you know, the anti-British protests in, in Boston. And the people he rallies you know, and take to the streets against uh, British policy, basically don't constrain themselves to fighting against British policy. They start going after wealthy people, more broadly speaking, um, which really troubles a lot of colonial elites. It's one of the reasons why the Sons of Liberty takes a more active and direct role in controlling and, and directing protests later on. But, you know, the revolution itself was, was, was never intended to be something that would confer a, a kind of broad egalitarianism uh, upon American society. Uh, There were grievances, um, in some cases shared mostly by merchant classes that faced things like uh, the Tea Act, um, that were broadened out in rhetoric to encompass uh, a wider section of Americans. But that was really just to sort of get people into the streets and to develop the base for an army that would take on the British. It wasn't a genuine feeling on the parts of the people who were leading the revolutionary movement that this was something that was going to 
empower common people. Um, and to the extent that people read that into the revolution, very quickly after it ends, you see people saying, well, you know, the Declaration said all men created equal. Surely that means the common farmer. Surely that means the slave. Uh, you know, there are efforts to tamp that sentiment down right away after the revolution ends. So, you know, that's, that's where I come down. I mean, it, it's, it's, there are a lot of rhetorical efforts to imply that they, a broad constituency is being created in America that will enjoy uh, equal rights or more equal rights after the revolution. But in, in, in their deeds and actions, that's never really lived up to. You can see it in the way that, as you said, the Sons of Liberty come in to direct the ire of the, of the crowds in Boston against the British authorities and away from just the wealthy of the town. Uh, because the context that is often left out of describing those early days of resistance uh, and and anger uh, in New England was a economic depression. It was a, a time of economic downturn uh, that was leading to a generalized discontent. Uh, but where that discontent flowed, how people understood that discontent was uh, the project of this group of merchants who had a very vested interest in making sure that People understood uh, the British to be the cause of their uh, their unhappiness, and it does not have anything to do with the, the merchant system that, that uh, these people benefit from. Uh, and that after the war, their position at like the top of this social structure allows them to dictate, essentially, uh, what percentage, uh, what degree of uh, alienation and anger uh, will be addressed by this new government, uh, and, and what... Uh, what will be off limits, which is why they get so fixated so quickly uh, on the idea of restraining the state, because the state must be restrained not to defend liberty as an abstract concept as they defined it and as they could define it, but as the liberty of property, which which was to be enshrined uh, in the absence of feudal the feudal order of Europe. Uh, you did have a situation where the common person was in a uh, unusually powerful hypothetical position relative to power. Uh, and that's why formal democracy sort of had to be introduced, but it also had to be restrained and the realm of the political had to be defined as narrowly as possible. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting on that level to highlight the conflicts between the citizenship of America, and I think especially uh, also interesting in that regard, is the conflicts between loyalists who were living in the in the colonies and the more revolutionary people. Because in certain areas during the revolution, this was a a war of terror against fellow citizens uh, who happened to be loyal to the the British who needed to be put in line under the uh, you know the the rebelling colonists' uh, um, force. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that was one of the things that was most um, most striking to me in, in reading Taylor's work and other historians who really make a big deal about this, too. I mean, the Loyalists were not like a huge faction of the population. It was like 20 percent of the people. Um, I think the, the way that historians try to break it down is that they think that about 40 percent of the public was for the revolution. This is like the free whites you know, public yeah. was for the revolution. Um, about 40% of people were neutral. And then there's this 20% block of, of loyalists. And the way that it's always represented, at least in, in my experience, in popular media depictions of the revolution is, well, the loyalists were these sort of elites who just liked the British and they spoke with the most British accents of everybody. And, <laughs> you know, the, the, the revolutionaries were these sort of hard scrabble uh, common people. And that's not really the way things broke down. I think that within each of those categories, you had people from different walks of life. Um, and there were a lot of common loyalists. Um, and, you know, one of the things that Taylor points out is that there were uh, Protestant religious minorities, uh, people like Quakers, for instance, um, who were in some places more likely to be loyalists just because they feared that if the patriots won um, and America became independent, um, the people who would be running the show, running government would be, you know, majoritarian, uh, majority Protestant denominations that might have uh, the resources then to start persecuting them. So the loyalists were a kind of mixed bunch. One of the things that Taylor points out also is that it's thought that some 20,000 ex-slaves fought against the American Revolution for the British after Dunmore's proclamation. Um, but I think it, it's important to, to see the revolution as 
I mean, Taylor really frames it as a civil war, partially for the reason I said at the very beginning. You, 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 it complicates the history. Um, it leads us to understand that this was not just a kind of pure ideological movement that people had sort of material reasons um, for taking the positions that they did in the conflict. Um, it didn't just, it wasn't just a matter of certain people being good and, and being for the revolution, certain people being bad and for monarchy and, and for loyalism. It was a lot more complicated and people were forced to make um, all of these contingent decisions. And one of the things Taylor points out too is that people switch sides all the time, just on the basis of, well, there's an army that just rolled into town. <laughs> you know, am, am I yeah. going to stay? Am I going to stay a loyalist? Am I going to stay a patriot? Or you know, is that going to mean that somebody's going to come break down my door and beat me up tomorrow night? You know, that's that's what a lot of decisions actually look like in in the moment and in the heat of things. So yeah, I mean, I think that that understanding how contentious things really were is, is important because it it it's another thing that breaks down the sort of um, conventional understanding of what happened and and the received propaganda version of what's happened that the people have inherited over generations. Yeah. So as we move through the revolutionary era, uh, a time that was perhaps more brutal and more of a civil conflict than we like to think into the articles and constitution, uh, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about how we think of the constitutional era as a conflict between ideals and political reality. Uh, so I'd like to hear what you guys think about the Constitution, not as a mechanism of democratic participation and expansion of liberties, but as a uh, a purposefully built baffle to democratic participation. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we have all of these discussions in our politics and we're, we're thinking about things today like, you know, the Electoral College, the sense to which the Senate is posing uh, an immediate obstacle to the uh, implementation of Biden's agenda. We, we have the conversations after we got going talking about current politics to, you know, we, we eventually move on to the, the, the basic framework of the whole system. And the debate is always, you know, are we a republic or are we a democracy? Republicans right. love saying we're a republic, not a democracy. I think well-meaning, progressively minded people uh, often respond by saying, no, like, if you look at the things that founders and framers actually said at the time and, you know, the fact that we broke from Britain in the first place, we're really a democracy and not a republic. And republic, at the end of the day, is a representative democracy. Where I've come down on this debate, not being a historian myself, just being somebody who's, I think, been drawn into history, just, again, as a consequence of trying to work through how to think about contemporary politics. Where I come down is that I think it's very hard to come to any other conclusion, looking at the bare facts of why the Constitution was written and what was written into it, than conservatives being right, basically, essentially <laughs> right, that we, that, we are, that we are a republic um, and that there is a difference between our understanding now of what representative government is supposed to be doing and what the framers' understanding of representative governments was for uh, at the time of, of the convention in 1787. They definitely did not go there thinking to themselves, well, let's create a representative government in the sense that we want to create processes and procedures that make it very likely that the people who end up in Congress or in the presidency are going to be reflecting popular will. That's not what, that's not what they meant by, and that's not what they intended to do with representative government. What they wanted was a system where the people would choose the most esteemed characters from their perspective in American society. They would have that amount of input. But then this class of people that would be generated by the process would go off and make decisions based on their own judgment. There would be some remove there. You see that most clearly in the original design of the Electoral College, right? The Electoral College was supposed to be a bunch of guys appointed by state legislators to decide on their own who they thought the president should be. Um, and it was sort of Frankenstein into the, the system we have today. That, that's, that's what they sort of felt and understood representative government, re Republican government, to be about, um, and as I said at the very beginning, you know, the reason why you have a, a convention in Philadelphia in, in 1787 is that they, the elites in American society are driven into a panic by the kinds of measures that are being enacted in state legislatures across the country. Again, after the revolution, the country's plunged into this economic crisis. Um, the armies have pulled out or been disbanded. That reduces a lot of demand uh, for goods that... that you know, that hurts the economy. There are new trade restrictions um, that the British impose. That hurts the economy. 
a lot of wealth has been destroyed. Uh, farms have been dismantled. A lot of slaves, uh, you know, yeah, ran off of the British army and, and uh, uh, got their freedom that way. That that hurts the economy. So there are all of these economic pressures that prevent basically governments, both at the state level and the confederation government, from making good on their debts, their war debts. Uh, and so they raise taxes. Taxes then become a greater burden on common people who are also facing their own private debts that they have to pay down uh, in the middle of this wrecked economy. And so across the country, you see people going to their state legislatures asking for the issuing of paper money. Uh, there's no hard currency in, this, in the country, basically, all the bits being flown off to, to Europe. They're asking for paper currency to help them pay down their debts. They're asking for tax relief and other forms of debt relief. Um, at, the, at the most extreme, people are going into courthouses to stop uh, foreclosures. They're going after <laughs> tax collectors. Um, and the biggest and most notable uh, rebellion happens not long before the convention convenes uh, Shades Rebellion in Massachusetts. Massachusetts had been one of the states that had been more resistant to debt and tax relief than, than the others. Um, the state can actually afford to field <laughs> a militia to, to actually... Uh, you know, put the rebellion down. So people start raising money, private finance to start raising money on their own to, to put it down. Um, and this strikes the fear of God into people like Madison and, <laughs> and, and Washington, all those guys. And that's, 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 that's the context at which the, the convention actually meets in. And if you actually read Madison's notes, if you read Yates's notes, all the records of what it was actually done and said moment to moment, this is what comes up more often than anything else. The, the fact that the state legislatures have been these venues where common people have been able to make a tax on the property of wealthy people or, the, or wealthy creditors, right? Most of the wealth or most of the, the debt um, that was outstanding would have been hoovered up by speculators and, and mm -hmm. rich guys. So the main project of the convention is to devise a system where you're going to create a sovereign federal government that's going to be less... Uh, susceptible to capture by popular will. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be a, you know, dominated, especially in the Senate, by the wealthiest people in American society. Um, and it's remarkable. I mean, we talk about how bad the Constitution is, and it is, it is bad, <laughs> but it's remarkable that it could have been even worse. Like, the, the, the things that we're considering, uh, you know, th there was a lot of conversation about having senators and, and the president serve for life, potentially. Mm -hmm. They wanted property qualifications, Mm -hmm. uh, for office and for voting, but just couldn't decide which ones that they, you know, would be best. You know, the, there, are all, there are all kinds of ways in which you know, the, the, the convention could have produced something uh, even more radically aristocratic than the system we already have, um, which, which should indicate to us you know, what the actual motivations were and, and what the actual mindset was of uh, the people who showed up there. Uh, most of the people who were at the convention... Uh, you know, we're, we're college educated, non-people went to what would become Princeton later on. Uh, I think about 14 of them were merchants, uh, about 10 or so who were in the finance industry. This is not a broad cross-section of American society. This was uh, people who saw themselves as elites and who said quite straightforwardly that the, the point of what they were doing and the point of drafting a new document was to protect their privilege and protect property, mm -hmm. which... Um, yeah, you know, people like Governor Moore saying was the point of organized society. Um, so that's that's the understanding that Americans should have of their constitution. Again, not because, I mean, I think I think the point of developing our understanding is is to sort of show people that again, it, it's not a, it, the Revolutionary Era was not a matter of ideas floating in the other, winning out, mm -hmm. um, and principles being. Uh, stated and agreed to on the basis of abstract, you know, uh, theorizing um, and compromises being made just to make compromises. You know, th th this was a political struggle. It was one that was dominated um, at the convention, at least, by the, the elite sections of American society. The ratification process is a big mess where people start <laughs> fighting back. But, you know, ultimately... Uh, the elites went out in what you can call counter-revolution or uh, coup, whatever you, you know, label you want to give it to. But, but ultimately, the, the story of the Constitution being written is a story of American elites being, uh, you know, scared and, and worried about the revolutionary energies that 
are unleashed after the revolution. Yeah. You know, they, they, yeah. they start getting worried about people being mad about taxes. <laughs> uh, and and they, they devise a solution that we're still stuck with uh, over two centuries later. And that constrains our own politics today. It would be one thing if if people did have were able to have, as you said, this understanding of of the Constitution as a project by people, you know, the 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 most influential, powerful people in this in this new republic coming together to create a order that advantages them. That's very intuitive. It's, it, it makes sense. How else can you explain how things happen? But uh, it's very difficult to uh, talk that way because uh, even that is seen as a violent assault on a constitutional order that a lot of people have a very vested interest in to this day in ascribing some sort of uh, sanctity to, some like a transcendent like moral weight to, uh, because if it is just uh, the result of, of, of power uh, negotiations, then it's renegotiable. <laughs> and that uh, that idea has to be resisted at every point. And so there is a, 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 a deep desire to keep all discussions of the of the Constitution and, and that uh, moment in time in the ether, as you said, as a question of ideas, as a question of of. Uh, of principles sort of floating around and battling each other uh, in the air, because when you ground them, uh, they lose their, uh, that airy sort of angelic patina and they just become uh, structures of governance that were, that are totally obsolete for our current conception of like what the American citizen is, what citizenship is. Yeah. And uh, you know, because Matt, you just brought up that we do have to kind of maintain this, um, this moral fantasy about the constitution to have a kind of collective fantasy of the legitimacy of the, the entire order. Um, you know, an- another thing that you wrote about recently, Osito was the, um, I believe you put it as the fantasy of moral ignorance mm-hmm. among the founders. Uh, this sense that, you know, that I brought up at the very first question that, that whether you are, you know, trying to observe history ideologically liberally or conservatively, that at a certain level you have to, Imagine that they just didn't know. They just didn't know what they were doing. Or there yeah. was a sense that that you know maybe some some of them did, and they were the the more enlightened progressive ones, and the ones who who did who you know I, whether it's you know, slavery or the more aristocratic elements of the founding and constitution that they they were just the products of 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 a time before we had become enlightened enough to move past those antiquated and barbaric ideals. Uh, but to what extent is that a fantasy, and and is that not the case? I mean, it's totally a fantasy, and I think that you know you see that really most clearly um, with slavery. I mean, I think I think that there is there is a, a certain level of delusion when it comes to the stuff we were talking about before. I think I think that there's a perverted, weird sense in which Madison and Washington, those guys, really did see themselves as like the legitimate people, mm-hmm. uh, and and really didn't see you know the poor as as having a claim to. The rights that they were taking for themselves. Um, I think that there's there's a level of deep. There's something you know. There's there's some there's something weird going on there, um, where they they're working very hard to negate their own understanding of the the extent to which they are the uh, you know uh, the oppressive force in society um, in American society. I think I think th- there's some there's some weirdness there. When when it comes to slavery, you know, you, I mean, you have. Jefferson writing to people in his lifetime that he thinks the majority of people in Maryland and Virginia, a majority of slave owners in Maryland, Virginia, think slavery is wrong. They just can't find a financial way out of it. And so it has to stay like that. that the idea that people didn't know or, or didn't have the capacity to understand that, you know, abusing uh, and, and, and mutilating and in, in Jefferson's case, I guess, raping these people mm-hmm. that they owned as property, um, they just had no sense that, that there, there was some kind of moral perversion there. It's just, it's, it's just wrong. Like people wrote mm-hmm. actively about it. The British, as, as soon as independence happened, started make, you know, saying things like, how, how can we ha- uh, hear the, the loudest cries of, for liberty amongst uh, uh, the drivers of slavery? I mean, they're, they're, you know, this, this was an active conversation that people were having at the time. Um, and the reason why you didn't have a, a larger movement against slavery at the time um, wasn't that there, there weren't these conversations happening about whether it was wrong. It was, you know, people made material 
decisions based on their material interests. It was just hard to part with that, that wealth. You know, it was, it was the basis of fortunes. Um, and, and it was seen as intractable for that reason. But this idea that we have that, you know, people who we tell ourselves were gifted with this incredible foresight and wisdom that were, were good enough to create a system that is, is uh, well-functioning and, and worthy of preservation today. Um, all of those things we say about the founders and framers on the one hand, to say that those very same people were just sort of incapable of understanding slavery is moral wrong. And uh, for all the revolutionary fervor and efforts in the, that other area, they were just wholly incapable of creating a different system um, and of dealing with slavery more, more directly, I think is, is nonsensical. Um, that's a way of partitioning them as figures to allow for us to keep our, our ideas of, about who they were um, pure. But I think they, they could have, they could have, struck against slavery if they'd really wanted to. They just, they just didn't have, you know, have it in them. They, they, they was, this was cowardice. This was greed. This was all the things that are parts of human experience. And these people were human. Um, and they made decisions that I think we can rightfully criticize because there were people at the time who were speaking out and saying that slavery and, uh, you know, the <laughs> creating a, a system that was oligarchic and aristocratic, um, there are people who are speaking out against these things and saying that they were wrong. And um, if, if the founders and framers were such geniuses, they should have been able to understand those arguments. You know, if, if we're able to take those ideas for granted today, you know, I don't think that they were so, so beyond the reach of people who we tell ourselves were um, deep intellectuals and revolutionaries willing to break apart tradition and break from you know, the established order of things in, in, during the revolution. If that, if they were able to do that in pursuit of their interests, uh, it was certainly within their power to think more radically about American society than they, uh, they show themselves willing to. It seems like they were uh, happy to do the thing that became the defining characteristic of, of governance under the constitutional order, which was to be aware of a critical contradiction at the heart of the process and then kick the can down the road and figure that somebody else, when it became more crucial, would uh, take care of it. And that certainly marked uh, the approach to the Constitution all through the early republic, or uh, the uh, uh, approach to slavery, I should say. Uh, those early founders, uh, I think a lot of them probably were uh, able to convince themselves anyway that slavery was uh, on a path towards a natural extinction, which, right, did, yeah. which meant they didn't have to do anything. Uh, but then within a few generations, you've got leaders in uh, the plantation South who have turned slavery into the bedrock keystone of a whole social order that they are defending uh, with their lives. Uh, and, th and the uh, constitutional order simply can no longer contain uh, that uh, fundamental contradiction. Those, those, the, the, the two systems uh, within one um, within under one flag uh, and at that point, the Constitution literally explodes. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it is unable to handle the, the crisis, uh, which is why, in my mind, the, the, the great tragedy isn't really that the Constitution uh, was – the constitutional order was made because there, the, the, the arrayed forces that existed at that time uh, were uh, these you know, individual – state-based ruling classes, uh, none of which really had the power to dominate any of the other ones, all of them having this general interest in creating a common market, uh, but all of them incredibly jealous of their own power. So, of course, the, the, the uh, instrument of government they create is this piecemeal patchwork thing that's meant to keep power out of the hands uh, of common people uh, and, and to allow for this deliberation between gentlemen, which of course immediately breaks down into uh, interest group politicking between parties. Uh, the explicit thing that they all said would ruin it if it happened. <laughs> and then sure enough, it instantly happened. Uh, that, that to me seems pretty well uh, over, uh, over determined, but then to have that order explode completely within 70 years of being founded uh, and then not to be scrapped and started over with 
that to me is is the real uh, road not taken because by the Civil War, uh, sufficient uh, powers have have developed across the land and and sufficient uh, popular mobilization is capable and institutions of demo- of uh, of government have been more democratized to uh, insist upon a more democratic order. And I think you see uh, movements towards that. You see certain people all through uh, American society, certainly the formerly enslaved, but many of the people who fought to uh, end slavery, uh, not- recognizing the insufficiency of the constitutional order. Uh, but I think that there's a kind of a cruel double game where the fact that the Constitution is what the uh, Union fought for in an abstract sense, made it harder really to challenge after the war. Uh, it's just fundamental incapacity to to accommodate democracy. Yeah. And I think it goes back to this point about you know, why it's dangerous to hallow these things, um, because it, it, it pens you in. So, I mean, Irving Howe wrote this essay a long time ago um, where he sort of tries to delve into why there wasn't, you know, there's never been a, a truly robust and successful socialist party in, in the United States or one that's capable of taking power. And he goes into the material reasons. Um, and that's what he spends most of his essay on. But he also talks to you about this idea that Americans have uh, that the revolution already happened, right? We had a revolution at the very beginning uh, where we created a, a utopian society, <laughs> a society that is, embodies all the ideals that you would want um, and all that's left for us to do now is to sort of just polish it up and, and sort of uh, patch up all of these different little, little places where it's, it's deficient. Um, but we had this kind of radical break um, from oppression and we created this system and that's kind of what we're stuck with. Um, and, you, and you can see people throughout history, you know, as Matt mentioned, uh, people within radical movements uh, and movements to change things uh, – appealing to the constitutional order or appealing to the American revolution um, and saying, well, we should do this or that uh, because if you read the declaration of independence in a certain way, and if you read the constitution in a certain way, it's really supposed to be a document that exists for everybody. And it's really supposed to be this engine for continually expanding uh, our rights. That's why I think so many liberals and progressives who mean well, you know, respond to the Republican side of this debate by saying, look, we, we we're a democracy in our, at our essence. And uh, if you read the founders a certain way, this is you know, all the things that we want now in 2021. We're secretly kind of embedded, <laughs> embedded at the founding moment at the beginning. You know. Yeah. If you like put on the 3D glasses from National Treasure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a but, but it's, it's because we've 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 made the beginning so holy that we think that that's that's has to underpin everything. We don't have conversations in this country. We don't really have conversations in this country about like ultimate ends or whether something is right or wrong. We talk about, you know, is America at its outset this or that? Is, is this or that constitutional, right? Uh, would the founders have wanted this or that? And, and, and I think at a certain point, the response has to be who cares? Like we, we, <laughs> we, enge- we engage in politics to do things that we think are uh, right. And, and to have all of our political conversations end with some reference to an origin point that we are, aren't living up to, or that should or shouldn't incline us into a particular direction is to constrain political possibilities. Um, And so I think one of the the real projects of my writing going forward is to sort of encourage people to think more ambitiously about where we can go and not feel so tethered to, to, you know, a particular idea about America's origins, partially because the, the great irony is that the, the people who founded this country uh, weren't interested in binding themselves to tradition or even to keeping their own promises <laughs> that they made to the public, right? These are people who were radical enough to break from the British Empire, to create a, a, an initial constitution and say, well, you know what, this isn't suiting our interests uh, well anymore. We're just going to scrap that and create something new. We're going to meet in secret in Philadelphia and not tell anybody what we're doing <laughs> and write a completely new one. Like, you know, the idea that we'd be bound to what those guys come up with, uh, came up with uh, over two centuries later is, is insane. You know, I, I think that we should see ourselves as, at least as much as, as historical agents as we see the people at the founding moment as, as having been. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's a sense that should empower us that, um, it, when, when we, when we 
think about solutions to, to our problems. I, I think we're at a point where it, it, it seems highly unlikely to me that the American Constitution will be amended ever again. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the yeah. barriers to doing so seem too high. In our current politics, maybe you know, the electorate changes in how many ever many decades, and, and it's different. But it just seems plausible to me that we're done with amending the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Matt's right that there was this moment after the Civil War where you could have seen the establishment to be fundamentally do new kind of order. Now, now it's a lot more difficult to, to mm-hmm. you know, you have to create a sense within a public that has been taught to revere this thing, that it's actually a terrible document that's not suited to their needs and it's going to kill us all eventually. So, so, you know, but, but I think that's, 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 that's kind of the, the struggle to the extent that there is an, uh, an ideological rhetorical struggle to be waged and we're not just subject to, uh, whatever, you know, you're confined by whatever material conditions happen to prevail at the moment. To the extent that we, we can act as agents and convince the public to, to think certain things, I think part of it has to be detach yourself from a sense that you are bound to somebody else's vision of America that you inherited, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we, we, could, we are as much authors of history as the people that we, who we read in textbooks. Right. Those people were ultimately just guys. Right. And we're 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 alive now. They're not. And so what this country <laughs> is or isn't and what constitutional order we we have, that's it's partially can be if we, we choose to take up the challenge up to us. That's that's, I think, uh, the main thing or one of the main things you should get out of reading uh, this history and history from this period. The task is is to reignite an idea that people live historically and that they're part of a historical process and that they have a role as agents. And it's difficult to imagine now just because of how little uh, social trust kind of extends beyond people's very near uh, parameters. Like, we, we really have gotten to the point where we view large segments uh, of the rest of the country as, as, alien in a fundamental way and these constitutional structures as ill-suited to the times as they are are sort of serve a function of reassurance that that we're going to be protected from them by these structures and that's always been the case with the constitution it's been a uh, appeal to some group to protect against some other group of people in the country uh, and that's one of the most, I think, uh, ch- fundamental challenges to uh, to breaking up that stasis is is to uh, imagine a public, imagine an American citizenry that could responsibly create a new social order w- with something like a consensual process. And I think for a lot of people that it's just so inconceivable uh that that the that the rickety and uh uh and obsolete structure of the constitution uh is preferable simply for the fact that it currently exists that nothing that comes after it could possibly be better i think that's right i'm just kind of imagining like you know if if we were to try to replicate the conditions of a constitutional era during this time that it would basically have to be like each state like votes to send the most like the two most famous guys from the state <laughs> to a, like a closed gymnasium. And then they just like get together for, you know, again, like those issues of like, not necessarily a politician, but just like the person who garners the most respect, like the, the biggest restaurant owner in your state. Yeah. You send that, you send them in and they hash out a new constitution. I guess in the, you know, the last part of this, one place I wanted to go is that usually when we talk about the Constitution, the founding, we, it's a very um, internal to American discussions. What we think about it, our moral relationship to it. And um, I kind of wanted to ask how we might think about our founding and our Constitution in a global historical context. I know at least Matt and I, I don't know, Asita, if you do, we both listen to the Revolutions podcast, which has been like a uh, you know five-year-long meditation on this era of revolutions. And I think one of the things that is interesting to me or strikes me is that the American revolution of, you know, the, the great 18th and 19th century revolutions, and then it's constitutional period are kind of like the, the most bloodless, the easiest, we kind of just get it done and stand up a constitution. And then it just, I mean, we have the civil war later, 
but then it just it's operating 230 years later with basically the same structure um what do you guys make of the constitution and the founding in the in the historical context why does america seem to work the best and have the best continuity of government uh as opposed to most of these other places that have revolutions that you know simply didn't last as long yeah i think that's a question that's well well above my my own pay grade it's a very good question and i think this one is one of the people who's probably spent a lot of time um diving into i mean i think that it, it it's it speaks to the success of the project that we were talking about before i mean this was an attempt by elites of American society to wrestle control of American society back. I think, you know, there's an extent to which other revolutions are, you know, that are more the, the, the products of genuine popular will um, are frustrated by the elite class that actually <laughs> was behind our revolution that ultimately set up the documents that, that sustained it. Um, so maybe that's, that's part of the reason why. Uh, I do think that the, the, the global context um, is important. Uh, you know, I talk about how, how Taylor emphasizes the extent to which the American Revolution was always so like a world war. We don't think of it in America as one at all. It's not something you're taught in school at all. But really, it set off a chain of events uh, in Europe and elsewhere that had people fighting as far away as, as India, you know. Um, mm-hmm. it, but that's, that's removed from our consciousness. You know, the other parts of my piece are about um, Taylor's book, uh, American Republics, about the post-revolutionary war era up through the Compromise of 1850. Um, and one of the things that text emphasizes is that a lot of domestic political discussions and debates are colored by and shaped by the risk that certain parts of the country might break off and join, mm-hmm. and join, you know, uh, join up with France or join up with Spain or join up with other European powers um, in order to secure their own interests. You know, there's a lot of talk about the extent to which, you know, the control of the Mississippi is an animating Mm -hmm. force in American politics for a very long time. People are scared that leaving territory unclaimed will allow troops to conspire with Native Americans and slaves to uh, murder white slave owners. I mean, there's a lot of like heady stuff that's animated by, it's basically foreign policy concerns. Um, and and that's that's one of the engines that, that drives the, the the full colonization of, of the continent. But none of those discussions aren't really, you know, at least when I went to school, none of that was really a, a big part of teaching um, on this era. And I guess it, it's partially uh, a way of, of <laughs> a, a way of, of sort of insulating us from American imperialism. You know, there's this where there's narrow window. Uh, in American public education between, you know, like 1900 and like 19, uh, you know, 20 or 30, where you're told like, this was the imperial era. That's when we did imperialism. And, mm-hmm. and it yeah. was, and then, you know, there were, there were, there were people who fought against it. And that's, that was the end of American imperialism and everything else has been, you know, a, a fight. Uh, it's, it's, you know, good against evil. Um, so I think that the sheltering us from the foreign context is a way of sort of foreclosing that discussion. But, you know, I think it's, it's also a, a way of isolating us in the sense that we don't see our, our own fortunes as interconnected with the fortunes of other people. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't see ourselves as being, you know, interconnected with other stories and other, other you know, we, we see ourselves as the main character, I guess is the way of saying it. We definitely and, have main character really, syndrome, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, if you if begin saying things like, well, the American Revolution was actually... And, and, you know, we, we were the pawns of a greater, uh, you know, game amongst mm-hmm. European powers. And uh, we were kind of a sideshow that ended up having much larger implications than anybody really anticipated. But, you know, if France hadn't come in, uh, you know, we might have been washed. And that's, that's not a very, like, heroic and mm-hmm. <laughs> mythopoetic way of, of seeing uh, history and, and understanding how it works. But that, that's reality. And I think that, you know, I think the public probably benefits from understanding that we're not the only country in the world and, and the extent that we see ourselves as, as the only country in the world. Um, it's been a mindset that has led to a lot of destruction, I guess, obviously. Yeah. Because the American revolution is the first of this cycle of revolution that kicks off uh, throughout uh, Europe uh, and partially as a result, I mean, France directly as a result uh, in part of the, of the debt that the French took on to, to defeat the British after getting their asses kicked in the seven years war. 
uh, and used us to do it. Uh, but our our revolution was really, as we've talked about, more of a separatist movement by this ex uh, the this extant and coherent uh, and un uh, un really unchallenged. Uh, certainly after the the Constitution gets gets fully codified, uh, and probably you could say at post uh, uh, post whiskey rebellion, no real like popular resistance uh, exists to this ruling elite, this combination of, of, of Northern merchants and Southern slave owners and land speculators. I mean, this land speculation is a big part of what motivated a lot of the, of the, uh, s- the slave owning class to uh, get along with the revolution. Uh, and they get to essentially uh, create this revolutionary new structure of government with elected officials and a president instead of a king uh, because a lot of the social conflict that a stable monarchy is supposed to manage uh, is managed by the process of settling and dominating this this largely uh, up for grabs territory that can be dispossessed from uh, its native uh, occupiers uh, and that allows for a sort of a constant stream of uh, of tension release within the social organism. The European countries uh, that get their own uh, economic crises that they are in that their systems are incapable of dealing with uh, don't have that luxury and are forced to reckon with where power will reside, uh, and it is this bloody process uh, that is remembered uh, as a uh, as a disruptive and violent period, whereas in the American Revolution gets to sort of uh, glide on by as a, mm-hmm. uh, as a as a theater as a as a museum piece, a perfect example of of revolution carried out correctly, uh, simply because so much of the violence of it uh, is not internalized within the system. It's carried out on the bodies of enslaved Africans and on uh, natives, uh, and then in colonial and imperial projects, uh, and that the entire time that ruling class gets to uh, continue exercising power uh you know until this new political class emerges to to challenge for power and to like create the administrative state that emerges after the civil war uh but there is no real reckoning with power uh in america the way there w- were in the the subsequent european revolutions i think then that i would like to end kind of coming back to where we began which is you know we're we're kind of not intentionally i mean to be very clear the reason that I wanted to start doing this president's podcast with Matt was because I thought it would be fun and I enjoy chopping it up about presidents with Matt. But we ended up doing it during this moment of this very heightened uh, uh, discussion about like, I don't know, education or what what we think of when we think about America. And, you know, when we th- this is the moment, the founding where we get our theoretically our ideals about this country. I guess my question is, is it necessary or even possible for Americans to have a moral relationship with the founding of this country. Like if either of you guys could design the entire American history curriculum for every student, or even more than that, uh, you know, program the matrix pod that they have to get into. So you have like a perfect clarity of your vision of American history into, you know, every new, new student's head. I don't know. Would there be legitimacy for the country would there be belief or, or faith or desire to continue this thing going? Uh, would everybody take off their VR headset with your course and say, and say, good God, what are we doing here? I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, I, America is a very unusual country. I mean, most countries don't have this kind of <laughs> this kind of story to tell about themselves, and yet they exist as units. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously the extent to which we should have nation states <laughs> in the first place is, is, you know, a big question that, you know, I think underlies some of this this discussion. But look, I, I don't think that the, you know America would collapse if you started telling people the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a real sense that 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 vulnerability I think underpins a lot of the defensiveness you hear um, when it comes to criticisms of things like the 1619 mm-hmm. Project, for instance, and all these conversations we've been having. I think there are a lot of American historians who generally believe that if you started telling people candidly about you know, what happened during the revolution, the conditions uh, from which the, the con- uh, constitution uh, 
was was crafted, you would undermine the myth so much that it would lead to a fragmentation in American society, and and people wouldn't have the the desire, as you say, to to go on. But like, I think that there are a lot of people like myself who know these things and still have it within them to keep working to improve this country. Um, not because we have some kind of mythic vision of what the United States was um, or is, but because we see people in our society who uh, can't afford healthcare, who mm-hmm. don't <laughs> can't afford places to live, who you know don't have power at work. Like we, we see in America uh, a polity of actually existing real people here in the president who are suffering um, and who we ought to help. Um, and you don't need a kind of mythic understanding of what the United States was to legitimize that struggle. Um, I think it, it, it is fully within our capacity to both tell ourselves a true story or a truer story uh, of what America um, has been all about, but to also say that you know it, it is a site for contestation and what it ultimately becomes is up to us. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that there's any contradiction there whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the real obstacle isn't, you know, our disposition towards American history. It's this thing that Matt was talking about before, the lack of social trust, the, the absence of real concord. People, you know, people, I think, rightfully believe that the American mythos has been part of that glue for some time. Um, but you can't hide the truth from people forever. Um, that was always going to be contingent upon people continuing to lie themselves about slavery and, and these other inequities that have been part of our society from the very beginning. Once people understand that, you have to have some other kind of binding agents um, to, to motivate you know, a collective uh, drive for change moving forward. Um, and I think that that ultimately has to come from developing a sense of democracy is important, mm-hmm. not just the American system that we told ourselves is democracy, but democratic values are important. Um, egalitarian values are important. And if we take them seriously, that inclines us to reforming not just our political system, but our economy, where we take it for granted that people don't have any rights at all, really, um, mm-hmm. at their workplaces. We, democracy is something that belongs to another sphere of society. It's a sphere of life. But when it comes to what you take home from work and whether you get a say, um, that's, that's an authoritarianism we've learned to accommodate ourselves to. So, you know, in, in my writing moving forward, I'm going to see if I can encourage people to develop a real understanding of why democracy in principle is, is important. And, and I think that that is a more promising engine for change than just sort of appealing constantly to a founding an American constitutional order that people are, I think, increasingly disillusioned with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... The, I think that the point that we have as people, historical action, that we are historical actors, uh, is really the antidote to that sort of uh, the, the, the feared paralysis and, and depression that's supposed to happen if all of our fantasies of, of, of our, our holy founding are disabused. Because if we assume that that task is over, and then we find out, oh, this was just a bunch of uh, rich assholes trying to uh, consecrate their wealth uh, in government, then well, that just leaves us with this despondency unless we understand not it as this domination of this class forever, but as 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 a process, as as people coming together to to determine institutions, some of them getting more of what they wanted than others, but that all of history is that process, which means – we are all here at this point in history with the same abilities that the people who made that era had and the same uh, potentiality to to shape our destinies. And that that is where uh, that's why I think, yeah, a, a more clear eyed view of the founding uh, is liberating uh, and uh, is a path to imagining uh, in your own life what you could do to actually live as a historical agent, as as a citizen of a putative democracy. You can be a founder. You can be a founder. Exactly. We're all mm-hmm. we're all doing it every day, but we're we're mostly uh, allowing it to be done to us because it's too hard to imagine anything else. And like this 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 nightmare on our minds of of this immutable constitutional system is part of the things that keep us 
keep us in that position. All right. Well, I think we can leave it there. Uh, Osita, thanks so much again for stopping by. This has been great. And we will see you, uh, the listeners, next week when we will be deep diving back into the Civil War era. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.